The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Okay, everybody, we're going to get started with the last portion of our day, um, which is the Q&A. And so we have all three of our speakers up here, and Amy and Susanna are standing in these two aisles with microphones. So if you have a question, just raise your hand, and they'll bring you the mic, and uh, you can field the question. And we do ask, as we do at all of our Q&As, that you make sure it's actually a question that requires a response and not just a statement of your own opinion on a particular issue. (laughs) So do we have any questions? Right here. So your spouse, uh, under biblical law, at least, is, should be is treated as the covenant is dead. At that point, uh, a, per- a person is free to re- take back their spouse. It's, it, this is not a prohibition of. Uh, it's not mandatory that divorce takes place on the basis of desertion and pornea. And in some cases, um, a spouse. Uh, has the desire, believes that there's true repentance, true confession, and there's a desire to re-establish the marriage. Um, but they have the right to divorce because it's been, it's been ended by that covenant violation. Now, um, in the case of somebody who's, the, this is my view, uh, of course, there may be, there is a diversity of opinion on these things, but I, I think this is the clear teaching of scripture. Um, the victim is, is therefore free to remarry. Uh, and uh, the purpose is that somebody who, if pornea is a grounds for divorce, what you don't want is a situation where people say, well, I'll, I'll commit an act of uncleanness to get out of my marriage so I can remarry. Or I'll desert my spouse, dissolve the marriage, and I can remarry. No, the Bible says you can't do that. If you're a victim of desertion or pornea, yes, you can. Uh, you, you can, you're, the, 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 the person is free to remarry. If you're the perpetrator, Jesus says that morally it's adultery if that person remarries. So you cannot benefit from pornea or desertion. That's the, the teaching of, as I understand it, the, the best distillation of the teaching in the New Testament on the subject. Go ahead. Just to follow up. Yeah. He who marries a divorced woman yeah. commits adultery, or she who marries a, a divorced man commits yeah. adultery. Yes, that that that's true in the case of a person who is the who is the perpetrator. 
There's no adultery if it's not the case. In the same way that if you're a widower and you remarry, it's not adultery because there's been a death of the covenant. Well, wherever the, co- wherever the marriage... The marriage is a covenant. Okay? I think where the, ch- the church can fall into two errors here, very quickly, so I don't take too much time. Uh, one is a uh, laissez-faire attitude, which we've got in the church today, which basically says, well, divorce is nothing. It's purely a private matter. That's totally unbiblical. Um, and we need to uphold biblical standards on divorce. The other is to become so pharisaic that our expectation of people is that they remain persecuted in some sort of living purgatory because they feel bound to an unclean, unfaithful spouse. And that is cruelty, in my opinion. I think it's completely unbiblical and ungodly. And so we have to, as a church, this is why this is a pastoral matter, because it's a case-by-case basis. These things have to be investigated by a pastoral team, by the pastors, to ascertain what has happened in the context of a, of a marriage with the breakdown. Just one further follow-up. If the per- perpetrator repents, is there a possible remarriage for that perpetrator? That's a tough one. <laughs> That's a tough one. I think Jesus says no. I don't like it in the sense that I don't... You can legally contract another marriage, but it's not the kingdom lifestyle that the Christian is called to. I think the kingdom ethic that Christ calls us to is a higher standard than that. Um, so I think I think Burnside is right in making there in Mark 10 of saying, Jesus says, because of hardness of heart, Moses allowed this. But the kingdom calling, and from creation it wasn't meant to be that way. So I think the standard for the Christian is Jesus' standard that the, the, we, we can repent and, and have our lives put right with the Lord and our relationship with God is totally restored. In terms of recontracting another marriage, I think that Scripture says the answer to that is, is no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in light of all we've heard today and are believed to be true about the degree to which uh, we've damaged sexuality in our society and uh, paganism and all it relates to, is there any advice or any help that you could give in light of a former brother or sister in Christ claimed to be a Christian but left that life and has now gone on to a homosexual lifestyle. In our case, somebody who was married with children and has now, in light of new permissiveness, married, left his marriage and married a man and still thinks God should be okay with that. I think Paul's counsel in Ephesians 4 is helpful here. Speak the truth in love. So don't water down what Scripture says. Don't water down what what Paul says, what Jesus says, what, what the Old Testament says on these issues. Be very clear about that. On the other hand, I would think that such a person has actually abandoned the gospel. And this is, a, this is evangelism you're engaged in. And they walked away from Christ. And you need to preach Christ. Quite simply. They, they, they've left their true husband. And you need to hold him out to that person again. 
finally get to say something? <laughs> you know, I think someone like that, if I, I missed a few of the words, but I think I heard you say uh, someone who was a Christian and then has left the Christian faith is adopting a sort of a pagan spirituality. And is that person also claiming to be a Christian? No. I'm asking you. Because there are folks who really become pagans, but claim that they're still in touch with Jesus. I think that's the most difficult one to deal with. But in all humility, I believe if you can show them the sort of model that we've been presenting of a oneist worldview and a twoist worldview, I think it's the most simple way of showing them they're not really committed to Jesus. You know, you can talk in terms of sentimentality, I still love Jesus. Yeah, but do you really love Jesus? You know. But if you can put this in terms of the worldview that they have espoused, if, if they've got a half a brain in their head, they're going to see that what they're now espousing is the totally other worldview. I think that's the last and perhaps the best hope of reaching somebody in that situation. And that goes also for Christians who claim to be gay. And there are lots of those. And there are more and more of them. And that's why I think this agenda gently needs to be used in this particular field as well. To show homosexuals exactly what homosexuality is. Not just physically, but also in the spiritual, historical, and global way in which it's promoting a new spirituality. And I, I would hope that Christians who claim to, gay, claim to be gay will either disavow their Christianity or reconvert. One or the other. Yeah, I think that what Peter said earlier in his lecture about avoiding moralism but putting the whole thing into a religious framework, an idolatrous framework, is the most helpful way of getting people to think about this. When you go right at it just in terms of a lifestyle, people think you're just criticizing a lifestyle choice, rather than this is idolatry. And I think um, even though it takes longer to do that, and it's harder work than just holding up a sign, you know, it, I think this is the route that we need to go uh, in terms of helping people understand that they have moved from a, uh, a Christian to a essentially a pagan worldview, and that what they're doing is actually the worship of idols. Hi, and my my question, kind of comment question concern is is to, to Peter Jones, um, and I say comment question concern because it's kind of a I, I want to make sure that I have a question. I just want to make sure you don't misinterpret it, and that I can actually fully explain myself. Um, so you brought up the concept of uh, oneness for us, um, but my, I guess my concern is 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 that what I really heard you preach about it was I didn't hear anything that was essentially wrong about it. No, really, your criticism towards this oneness lifestyle was this, just that it was, it was pagan, and I I didn't really catch if if maybe I'm not sure if you did or not, but. Basically, what are we what are we supposed to do with this knowledge of 
of oneness. I, I'm, I'm not sure if it was supposed to be like some kind of ideology that we make them conscious of and then all of a sudden they, they realize what's going on. But I think even if that was true, they would say, okay, yeah, I understand that it's oneness, but I still prefer oneness over dualism anyways. That's exactly right. Uh, I think evangelism today should take the form more of conversation than of walking around with placards or of just making statements in the air. I think we can engage people in the conversation of worldview. Now, when you've shown somebody that they're actually adopting a worldview of oneism, you can tell them you can remain there, but that is a total denial of the God of the Bible. And the lifestyle involved in that is a total denial of the kind of world that God has created. So I'm not condoning oneism, I'm just saying it's the other worldview, but that it's a denial of twoism. Keep that in mind, it's one or two. And if it's one, it's going to undermine twoism. If it's two, it will deeply criticize one. Paul calls those two things the, the truth and the lie. So we're not just dealing in a conversation, we're actually ultimately dealing with the truth about the world or the lies about the world. Oneism is, oneism is the lie. Nicely put, you know, carefully worked out into a system of all is one. It sounds so nice and warm and fuzzy. But it is the denial of the God who creates the world, is separate from it, and creates the world with structures that reflect the Trinity and who He is, and the God who finally comes to save us because we've rejected it. Did I get to your question? The, the concern is that if, if I were to show someone of this worldview, they, and I would say exactly what you say, you say you're, you're denying God, the Christian God, it, it's kind of like a, yeah, well, yeah, obviously, so, like, so what? I would, I would rather accept, I mean, this oneism sounds like a lot better than dualism, where you have a, a separation of people, a somewhat segregation, some people could say, some kind of, it could be even leading to some things that we would discriminate against today, or go to this unifying path where we're all one, yeah, we're warm and fuzzy, well then, they would probably most likely choose one of them. Yeah, be careful. I didn't speak about dualism, which is the conflict, uh, actually, the conflict of mind and body, but duality. Duality is the distinction between God and creation. Now, I can understand that some people will say, I prefer oneism. Well, you'll have to say to them, well, that's your choice, but you realize that that is in total denial of the truth of the Bible's tourism. But you cannot, you know, you can't force them to leave that vision, which I agree looks very tempting for many people. But, you know, it is, it's not true. And so you have to try and convince them that it will end up, as um, Joe was pointing out, it will implode. As a system, it will implode because it does not recognize the way God set up the world and human beings to live in it. So there are all kinds of you know, negative critiques you can make of oneism, which at that point are helpful. 
Does that help? Okay, what you're, what you're saying is, <clears throat> why is twoism superior to oneism? Why should the non-believer reject oneism and be a twoist? The answer, to my mind, is that oneism destroys all distinctions and all differentiation in creation, which, which makes it uh, an impossible worldview to hold rationally. So that, <clears throat> for example, one very practical example we're dealing with today is gender. Oneism denies the reality of male, female. Moreover, it actually, because in the Christian worldview, in the being of God, you have, I talked about the one and the many. I talked about the fact that in God, you have the equal ultimacy of one and many in the being of God. Now that is where knowledge and uh, the very categories of, of uh, moral thought arise because, let me give you a very simple illustration. Who was God loving before he created the world? If we're Christians and we really believe God created the world, who was God? how could God be love before he created the world? Or what did God know before he created the world? If God were a blank unity, it's because God is three in one, the Father loves the Son through the person of the Holy Spirit, there was knowledge, there was intimacy, there was community, there was morality therefore, there was a, a structure of relationship that is then reflected in creation. Now the oneist, if you uh, push the logic of oneism, just as there is a denial of the distinction between male and female, truth and falsehood, how can you have a rational discussion with somebody who denies there is a distinction between true propositions and false propositions. How can you have, thank you Scott, another prompt, it's good. Um, uh, how can you have a, 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 a debate, a moral debate with somebody who believes that there is an equivalence, an equality between justice and injustice? How can you have a debate with a Buddhist philosopher who doesn't believe in West, who calls the idea of the law of non-contradiction Western logic, right? Because if, if, if the basic law of logic, P and not P, is that it, which denies that something can be not itself at one and the same time, itself and not itself at the same time, the foundation of logic disappears. So oneism, which says ultimate reality is bare unity, bare impersonal unity, everything collapses. Even personality collapses. You can't have relationship, you cannot have love, you cannot have knowledge. Knowledge requires subject-object relationship. What's your name? Peter. Peter. So you, if I'm the subject that knows, you're the object that's known. For knowledge to arise, there has to be differentiation, distinction. Two. Right? Then I can know you because you are distinct from me. One of them says there is no dis ultimate distinctions between anything. So you cannot know anything ultimately in oneism, which is why unconsciousness, as I said in my last lecture, is the is the is nirvana is the goal of oneism, because there is no knowledge even of the self. So in other words, human experience is rendered impossible. That is, it's rendered totally self-contradictory. You cannot account for human experience. Oneism reduces to an unintelligible assertion about reality. It's totally unintelligible. Therefore, it's impossible. So when you deny it, if you deny twoism, you're actually affirming it. Because you're saying that, it, that oneism is right, twoism is wrong, but if there's an ultimate equivalence of everything, and all things are equal, you just deny oneism. You with me? 
So if you're not, buy my books. There's a chapter called The Heart of the Matter and A Matter of the Heart. Those in my book, whilst I deal with this argument, I show in the whole purpose is to show how in Christian apologetics, you take you can take a monist worldview, a monistic view of reality, where you haven't got the the Trinity, the being of God, distinct from within himself, the persons of the Trinity, as and distinct from his creation. And how all of the world collapses into meaninglessness. You cannot affirm or predicate anything about anything in a oneist worldview. Now, you, I've just tried to do that in three minutes. You can actually do that in two minutes or 20 minutes or an hour or in a book. Depending on how deep you want to go. But it's actually not difficult to show a oneist that their position is fundamentally self-contradictory. And that's how we demonstrate. Now, that doesn't make somebody a Christian. As Peter is saying, you can't convert somebody out of their oneism by an intellectual argument. Uh, but what you can do is show them the folly of their position. Answer a fool according to his folly, the Bible says. So you show the impossibility of their worldview that itself destructs. Scott, you're going to say something. Yeah, it's not a question, though. It's just an observation. Do you believe in human rights? If you believe in human rights, you have to have a an understanding of what a person is and the distinctiveness of one person from another in order to establish human rights. If you deny that, which is what the oneness position is, you can't have human rights. Then you will say animal rights are the same as human rights, which are the same as tree rights, which are the same as water rights, etc. Right? So it's all gone. I'm over here. Okay, so um, I have a question kind of going back to the one before about homosexuality. I have a friend who grew up in the church. We've known each other since grade 7. Since then, she has come out as a homosexual. And then over the past couple of years, she has changed her identity into a man. Um, and this has been a tricky issue for me because she claims to be a Christian. So this is where I was hoping that you guys, I don't know, whoever feels like they have the best answer um, and just dispel a little bit for me. I go back often to 1 Corinthians 7, and it says to not associate with sexually immoral people, but he's referring to the people of the world. But he's saying for those who claim to be a brother, is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? God judges those on the outside, but purge the evil person from among you. So I'm wondering if you guys understand what the word associate means and whether or not I take it upon myself to determine whether this girl who claims to be my sister is, and so I take an evangelistic view, or I purge her from my circle of friends. We are in infrequent communication. But then also, what does our communication look like from now on? Yeah, I would say that you, you consider her an unbeliever. You do. So that, that means then that you don't disassociate from her. You continue, you keep, keep up the friendship. But as far as you're concerned, and I think it's clear biblically, she's not a Christian. And she can, be, she can claim to be all kinds of things, but she's not. And so just consider her an unbeliever. Uh, a good friend of mine, is a, he calls himself a queer Anglican. Uh, but uh, anyhow, we have, lots of, we have lots of interesting discussions. But actually, he called me recently quite upset. And he said, I'm not sure we can continue to be friends because I see you as a Christian, but you don't see me as a Christian. 
And he was, he was upset about that. And I acknowledged, okay, I see an imbalance there. But that's the case. And he's, he's worried and always trying to evangelize him, etc. But I, I, don't, I don't recognize him as a Christian. I don't see him as a believer. So then I continue to associate with him. I'm not sure if this person attends your church. I mean, it gets a bit more complicated if that's the case. It's an issue for your pastors to address. If someone is a church member and professes to be a member of the church, a Christian, then that's another issue. Then, then there is a, a disassociation that needs to happen on that level. My concern here is that there have been, over the, the amount of times that we've been meeting, I get a feeling as though our association is almost affirming that God thinks it's okay. Because I'm a Christian and I'm hanging out with her, though she knows my position with her lifestyle and choices, she, I feel that it asserts her lifestyle and her decisions. And so I'm stuck between trying to be the love of Christ, but also stand for truth and not allow her to think that what she's doing is okay. Out of love, it's I think that's the problem with a lot of people, you know, um, Christian or non-Christian, you can be friends with adulterers, and it would seem that you were really affirming their position by being friendly to them. So there's a risk always in that. I have uh, a loved one who's living with a man, and I just don't know the right way to go. Um, well, I'll tell you the whole truth. It's my daughter. And she's living with an unbeliever in London. And we scratch our heads knowing how to relate to her. She is a baptized Christian. and You know, do we have a relationship with her that's normal? Uh, or do we sort of have no relationship? And I've been going back and forwards on that. I, to tell you the truth, I've tried to keep a strong relationship with her. And even have a good relationship with the man she's living with. But my great worry is that I'm affirming that false relationship. So, there may be no simple answers to this. I like what David said though, that if you're convinced really deep down that she's not a Christian, then you should keep, keep that relationship going. Because you're going to be able to one day, I hope, show her that she's not in love. You won't do that unless you have this relationship. There's no way you can get close to these kinds of people unless you have a personal relationship with them. But it, it is an awkward one, I can see that. And, and I'm suffering from that too. I would only add that um, I think we need to be clear as Christians that uh, if somebody is living decidedly and as a lifestyle in a particular form of sin, unrepentant, and they persist in it, I don't see how Scripture says they're believers. So there's one thing to fall and to stumble, and that's where confession, repentance, restoration church discipline, which is for the purpose of restoration, happens. That's why what David said is so important, that if this person is in a church that's supposedly evangelical, if I was the pastor there, the elders would have met with this person, and if they hadn't repented, they'd be out. 
then, then you don't any longer have them. And then they're to be treated as an unbeliever, Scripture says. Right? So uh, the pro- part of the problem is sometimes that what we created, because one, we don't exercise church discipline, and two, we have a view of Christianity which says somebody can be living in a habitual lifestyle of sin and still actually be uh, a believer. Whereas Scripture says that's evidence that they're not a believer. So um, I think uh, uh, both, well, I would completely agree with what both Peter and David said. I've said I would simply add that I think part of the problem is of our own making in the church, is we've been unclear on this point about what constitutes a believer. It's not that somebody said the sinner's prayer 15 years ago, you know, and oh yeah, they said it once, so they're, you know, which sinner's prayer isn't even in the Bible. Uh, let's, we'll discuss that now. But, uh, and, and for the fact that very often the church has not exercised church discipline in multiple cases. And that gives terrible moral ambiguity for the people around them. They're not sure how to handle a given situation because things have not been made, made clear. So I think you're in a situation where you are, as Davis is dealing with a non-believer, you need to be evangelistic. But yet maybe there's a place where you need to draw the line, uh, though, with, with some of, maybe that the relationship is at a point where too much time is being spent or too much affirmation is being received. And, you know, I don't know. That's something only you would know. A question for Peter. I'm fascinated by your relationship or, uh, with John Lennon, I mean, as, as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> And real quick, I just really want to know how close were you? you know, to... <laughs> no, 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 I don't mean that. I, I, I don't well, we were about this close. I like to say I told him everything he did. <laughs> but, I guess my question is more because I know a little bit about his life, and I know I believe he went through his parents' divorce, did not, and, 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 and I think he, arguably he was he was probably you could argue one of the greatest figures of the the new age. Well, I mean, you, you, you pop, pop the story will probably debate that fifty years from now, but you could say he was maybe the progenitor of that whole world that we live in now. And I just wonder, did you know him well enough then to know that, see signs of that maybe when he was young, that he was leading, you know, sort of, like his cynicism, I remember his, his ashram, his, his, with Yoko sitting in the bed, remember when the, the peace movement was on, I mean, his, his, you know, imagine there's no heaven or hell. The man was very brilliant, but I mean, he was obviously a great songwriter. So, anyway, I just... Like I said, I told him everything he needed. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, I only knew him from the age of 11 to 15, 16. And uh, we were not into deep thinking, and he was certainly not into Eastern religions by any means. We were raised in a typical grammar school in Liverpool. Every day, the school began with the uh, headmaster leading us in prayer and Bible reading, and uh, most of the special events took place in All Hallows Anglican Church just down the road. In other words, we both grew up in a very Christian environment. It was much later when Lennon, I guess when he started taking drugs, which really lead people far afield, and then marrying a Buddhist, Yoko Ono. Now I have earth-shaking news to share with you that I think is true. At one point, Lennon became a Christian believer. Uh, I don't know whether I should go into it all, but I have, on, on good authority, I, I have the knowledge that he actually bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. And that one day we may see him in heaven, along with Napoleon, who apparently 
converted at the end of his life. I think there'll be all kinds of all kinds of people in heaven will be surprised, and there'll be a lot of absentees we thought were going to be there. So um, I don't think the history of Lenin has been finally written. You know, he did, I was in Oklahoma, and uh, someone showed me a letter that he'd written to Oral Roberts asking where was love, that he couldn't find it. So he was seeking desperately after all the stuff he wrote and all that Eastern mysticism. So, um, the whole story has not been told. Just going back to the issue of um, homosexuality, um, and here, I mean, um, there are believers who are in the church who perhaps have a propensity toward it. They know it's wrong, they're not practicing homosexuality, but they struggle with that. Um, what do we as a church do about those people? And I mean, uh, for example, we have, you know, the church has a lot of, you know, marriage counseling classes for the sin of adultery. We have sent pastors and missionaries into the prisons to reach those people who, might, who may have committed the sin of murder. And there's many other examples like that. But what does the church do about those who struggle with, with these issues and know they're wrong? Oh, I'll just say something very simplistic that... I think we can accept people with same-sex uh, temptations who are celibate and work with them and hopefully bring them to a, a different view of themselves than the opposite sex. Celibacy then is the situation where they need to find a certain amount of peace, where they can indeed participate in church life and so on and be part of the body of Christ. Because being tempted is not a sin. It's giving in to temptation that's a sin. Now I suppose we can be giving in intellectual, in our minds sometimes. Um, yeah, we can. But we can, we're all of us doing that. We're committing sins in our minds when we're tempted. But we're not acting on it, and therefore it's not an issue of church discipline. So I think in that case we encourage those people to be celibate and then live trusting in the Lord. I would add to that that um, in uh, Eastern thought, certainly in Buddhist thought, desire is the source of suffering. And so the idea in Oneism is that you free yourself from desire so that you can overcome the, everything around you. Um, the problem is the desire to be free from desire is a desire. <laughs> so what Christ says is that he can transform our desires. There's a big difference. So he's able to actually give us the desires of our hearts, Scripture said, which doesn't mean he gives us what we want. He gives us godly desires. So I think we need also a renewed confidence that actually... Um, not only can these people be encouraged if marriage is a calling, and singleness can be a calling for such people who are struggling with same-sex attraction, but also uh, that, as Peter says, temptation itself, we all face temptation of different kinds, um, and they can overcome temptation, and God can give them godly desires. Now, as a side note, the Right up until the 1970s, 
the DSM, which is the Bible of Psychological Disorders, listed homosexuality as a treatable psychosis. And it wasn't changed because psychiatrists and psychologists said, oh, there's no science behind that anymore. It was changed purely for, because of political pressure. The same is now happening with respect to pedophilia. So if we say, you know, if we make desire in itself the defining, our sexual desire something defining about our person, which is why we don't even like the terms homosexual, because that says that somehow somebody's desire uh, or gay is, is, is somehow defines them, uh, then we would have to start saying that, well, people who are sexually attracted to children, and that's what they're pressing for. They say, well, if gay, uh, if homosexuality is not a psychosis, then neither is um, a, a pedophilia, attraction to children. And there is a very strong intellectual political movement now seeking to... Right, in fact, there was a conference on today, today, at the Ontario Institute for Education, OICI, uh, where a man called Dr. Kincaid from the States, who uh, promotes at least what he calls theoretical or intellectual pedophilia, uh, is speaking to teachers, a conference of teachers, to talk about the sexualization of children and so on. And uh, I, I was actually, our Leadership Day Wednesday, I read a whole article about that and what his ideas uh, are. Trying to normalize that, well look, they call it intergenerational love. So if you can have same-sex love, why can't you have intergenerational love? There are others, and there are again powerful movements, especially in Europe right now, where incest. Look, if, if, it's, a, if it's a lawless world, what if I love, want, to, want to express love to an immediate relative? And so progressivism has no logical stopping point. It's progressing where? So it has no end point until all distinctions have been broken down. So, where was I going with that? I'm not even sure now. Um, God is able to, uh, if, this, if the psychiatrists and psychologists themselves believed and used things like reparative therapy, and it worked. It was hard. It didn't work for everybody. But non-believers going to non-believing psychiatrists and health, uh, mental health professionals found that they could alter those, desire, those basic desires. And it was political pressure which had that removed from that, the, that list of disorders. God is able to change our disorder, disorders. He's able to transform our desires. So that should be a matter for prayer, and it also should be a matter where we are seeking to, and it may be the Christians will need to create their own, of course they're trying to forbid this by law now, this is now banned, these treatments are being banned steadily in, in Europe and in the United States, steadily. That even if a homosexual comes to a, health, um, a mental health professional and says, I don't want these feelings, I want treatment, it will now be increasingly, I don't know whether it's right, whether it's federal, but it's certainly happening in various states now, uh, it will be illegal for that health professional to treat them, even if they want it. The human rights violation, illegal, they can be struck off. That's already just happened in the UK. So Christians may need to start their own associations of mental health professionals as well to uh, continue with these therapies and treatments where people's desires actually can be changed. We mustn't give up on that. I know Exodus International has just thrown in the town on that in some travesty of compromise, but that doesn't need to be the case. Yeah, I'll just add very uh, briefly to that, that remember what Jesus said to the Sadducees, you know, neither the scriptures nor the power of God, he said. That's the work of the Spirit. 
And in the Father's understanding of the work of the Spirit, the, the Spirit is the sanctifying Spirit, the perfecting Spirit. And what is the Holy Spirit doing in the lives of Christians? Restoring the image of God. Conforming us to the image of Christ. Restoring the icon. So I think uh, let's not uh, overlook the power of God's Spirit to bring healing and restoration in the lives of people struggling with that. Now this may sound a bit more controversial, but remember Augustine's three goods of marriage. The libido was an issue there, on the one hand. So some Christians advocate this, and this is worth at least thinking about, and I'll tell you, I'm thinking about it right now, so I'm not necessarily endorsing this, but they'll say, even so, get married to a woman. Be a mother and a father, have a family. Your sexual desire doesn't define masculinity or femininity in the sense of being a mother or father or family. That can still be an icon of the Trinity. And, and there, there can be meaningful a covenant marriage right there. On the other hand, uh, all of us are, are, those of you that are husbands here, you know, warm-blooded guys, sure, we have desires that we don't act on. I think any man here would honestly say, yeah, every once in a while there's a desire that's inappropriate for another woman other than my wife. I don't act on it. So, so uh, to, to just uh, affirm what Peter is saying, maybe that's a call to celibacy. I just want to uh, thank everyone for uh, coming today and for taking time out of your schedules to be here. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.